City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing. And I'm Doug Leeds, President. We have a very exciting seminar today, delving in-depth into how theatre gets made. Both the Annenberg Foundation and Dorothy Strelson Foundation have played a major part in expanding these programs, and we want to thank them. People often come up to me and say, we know the American Theatre Wing founded the Tonys, to recognize excellence in the theater. But what else do you do? Well, a lot. An awful lot. These seminars are just one of the many educational programs we sponsor. We also produce Downstage Center, a weekly theater interview show on XM Satellite Radio, Springboard NYC, a summer session for college students interested in theater as a career. We host the theater intern group, and give annual scholarships to students and grants to New York not-for-profit theater, both off and off-off Broadway. So yes, we do a lot more than just recognize excellence on Broadway with the Tony Awards, which the Wing founded almost 60 years ago. We serve the entire theater community by educating, nurturing, rewarding, and encouraging participation in the art of live theater. Be sure to go to our website www.americantheaterwing.org. You'll find a great deal of information on theater, all of our educational programs, and of course, these seminars. And now let us begin today's seminar on performance led by the American Theater Wing's Executive Director, Howard Sherman. Thank you and welcome to our performance panel today. Uh, it's the cliche, but it is a panel that needs no introduction, so I will introduce them only by their most recent credit because they all have so many. Beginning on my right, Billy Crudup, currently appearing in The Pillow Man. Marsha Mason from Steel Magnolias. David Hyde Pierce from Monty Python's Spamalax. <laughs> Cherry Jones from Doubt. <laughs> and Raul Esparza from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> it strikes me that so often when there's discussions of theater, we hear from our fellow audience members, we hear from the critics what they think. But when we look at performances, we look at considering what we look at on a stage, we don't often hear from actors themselves about what impresses them. So with a couple of ground rules, I want to start off the panel today by asking, what is the last performance that you all saw, other than a performance in a show that you were in, one of your co-stars or yourselves, <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what is a performance that you saw recently that particularly impressed you, and why? What is it that you look for in a performance? <clears throat> so I'm going to go in order and start with Billy. <clears throat> um, well, uh, there was a, a, a play called Shockheaded Peter that's still out now, I think. And I, I'm, forgive me, but I can't remember the actor's name who plays the MC. Um, does anybody know? Uh, it'll, there you go. Um, it was, uh, I, I think what I appreciated about it was its level of extravagance and uh, its level of theatricality married with some kind of uh, comprehensible understanding of human behavior. So it wasn't so outlandish that you kind of go, is this a caricature? There was some grain of truth in it that made me uh, think of a very specific time and place, but it wasn't necessarily of this uh, world. And uh, I appreciated the fact that he had created this entire character uh, for which there was no explanation needed. He came out on stage and stood for about a minute and a half, and you were entirely filled, on, filled in on his history. And um, I don't know, I, that's one of them. Okay. <laughs> Marcia? Well, um, I preface this because I haven't seen anything since I came to New York to start rehearsals. Well, we, with, sh we should with say one, one of the great challenges is of seeing performances that when you're in a show, you very often can't see anything. That's right, so. until we see the actress on benefits. But fortunately, we opened on a Monday night, so I went to the theater on a Tuesday night, which is dark, and I saw a play called Doubt. Hmm. And um, I was extremely impressed because there were for a lot of reasons obviously because it's a beautiful play and it's really about something in a very complex way but it's so incredibly and beautifully acted by four actors and there's something that happens when I'm in a prop city play I mean we have props galore I'm in a play about a beauty shop so I don't think I have to say anything else but this play is very spare in um, that area in terms of what the environment of the play is and here are four actors who then have to create this world um, of a very small uh, period. It's in a, you know, it takes place in a period in a very specific locale, which is Brooklyn, and then create this world for you. And the thing that was, struck me was how uh, vulnerable the actor is when you're on a stage and you just have to stand there and say the lines and interact with each other. You don't get to hide behind anything, um, even a habit. Um, <laughs> but there is a, also a moment in the play that struck me um, enormously, too, and this goes to the direction of the play, which is there's a moment where um, Cherry is having a confrontation with the priest, and the, she chooses to stay seated in a chair while he is standing over her. And it's a very confrontational um, moment in the play. And I was struck because it's, she's in the sort of sub, uh, submissive position, and he's in a very strong position over her, and yet she has all of the drive to confront him, and she never moves off of the chair, which normally another person might want to stand up, you know what I mean? But she stays in the chair and she just hits him with what the moment is really about. And these two actors are fully engaged with each other. So for all those reasons, you know, you look, but 
And also, too, because I'm taken in by the drama of it, I'm taken in by the place and the time and the event, and then the actor part of me then gets to appreciate the artistry on the stage. I want to come back to something you said there, but let's finish going around, because you raise an interesting point in the midst of that. David. Um, I, uh, for the same kind of scheduling reasons, got to see uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, this new production. Um, and uh, the whole cast is incredible. And, uh, but for me specifically, I, I so responded to what Bill Irwin did, mm -hmm. because first of all, he had the cojones to do that part opposite Kathleen Turner. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and, and also, he's not known for that kind of performance, that kind of acting. For, uh, you know, he has established himself in this completely other genre. And the thing that I loved so much about it was that he simultaneously played this part, played George so beautifully, so differently and interestingly, and yet he still brought, as any good actor does, who he is, his innate sort of whimsical nature. And really that's true for everyone in that play. They all managed to bring clearly, and were encouraged by the director, to bring uh, their own instincts, who they are, which made it a completely fresh experience of the play and a complete real interaction of those people as well as those actors on the stage. And that was like watching a new play. Cherry. I, I felt so much the same, that, that sort of quirky failed act academician, yeah. you know, that you could just imagine him in that college with that weird, uh, he was fantastic, yeah, yeah, that I love that production too. I, <clears throat> I haven't gotten to see that many things either, I, uh, but I, I have two or three performances that just, anytime I'm asked this question, which were never asked enough, by the way, so thank <laughs> you for asking it, um, Pamela Geen in the syringa tree just always pops to mind. I, I have just never seen anything quite like it. It really stands out as one of the top three performances I've, I've ever, th that will live on in my memory forever. And uh, it took place in South Africa, and she must have played about 25 characters, mm. every single one of them alive and real and true, and the beauty of the story, and the, uh, how she did it night after night, I will never know. And, and uh, you know, this incredible range of accents and, and ages and experience. And there was no question but that the, the stage was peopled with all of those people and so much love and, and such, you know, just the complications of life. And, and oh, it was just, it left me breathless. And <clears throat> the other one, well, there t well the, the, the next one that I can think of just immediately is Elizabeth Marvel's... Uh, <laughs> Blanche Duvall. Anything, <laughs> Anything Elizabeth Marvel does. <laughs> but her Blanche in particular, it was that Ivo von Hofa production uh -huh. down at New York Theatre yeah. Workshop. Yeah. And it was, it, it, it was just, because that wasn't a play, I don't know, it's maybe because I'm Southern or something, but I, I sometimes have a little trouble with Tennessee Williams, except, of course, for Night of the Iguana. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, which Marsh and I did together. So I decided, um, but uh, I, he, he, that production made me understand Streetcar in a way I'd never understood it before. And, and Liz Marvel was, as an actor, just purely as an actor watching another actor, it, it was like a grading an Olympian. It was, it was like 10, 10, 10, 10, <laughs> all the way across the, the board. I, I couldn't believe it. And just physically, they did unbelievable things because he's a European director. They, at one point, she, she disappeared into a tub. I mean, literally disappeared into a tub. She just went, pew, 
and was gone for like 30 minutes in the tub. <laughs> I don't know how she did it. And then she reemerged. It was, she was just unbelievable. Th those are the, my two that first come to mind. Um, well, f for me, it, 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 I haven't really seen very much this, this season either. And uh, there was that evening of the Dramatists Guild where, where you guys performed stuff from Doubt. And, and I, I always answer this question uh, the same way. It just happens to actually be Cherry Jones over and over for me. <laughs> so it's a little embarrassing. But um, <clears throat> because <laughs> when I was in college, uh, we went to see Our Country's Good. And I had never seen Cherry Jones on stage. And out walks this hulking brute of a monster, basically. This tough, sort of dumb, slow, lumbering woman. And I thought, oh, so that's Cherry Jones. But the performance stayed with me. Then I moved to Chicago, and I saw Cherry Jones in Night of the Iguana. And out walks Catherine Hepburn, light as air and completely, um, completely a sort of this, this soul that seems completely separate from what was happening in that Mexican town. The, the heat of that production, the suffering of the people around in that production, the, the storm that was blowing through the Goodman Theater, uh, all of it uh, seemed to disappear when, when, when Cherry and, and Billy Peterson sat down on the edge of the Goodman stage and began to speak to each other. And I felt like I was eavesdropping hmm. on a conversation and I thought, I've just never seen anything like that in my life. I'd never seen a performance that I felt I shouldn't be listening to. That I felt, oh, this, this is private, and I shouldn't be here. There's something about what they're saying that is not for me, and you, you can't tear yourself away. And it was exactly that thing that they always talk about, uh, being so totally private on stage, and yet in, in a public format, uh, so that the audience feels like, like they're invited to something. Um, and that was happening. And then... Out you walk again to do just a scene from Doubt, and I'm standing backstage, and there was another kind of woman on stage, <laughs> uh, a, a, a tougher, more frightened, uh, uh, intellectually powerful woman who uh, was rigid in a certain way, and everything about your body was changing, and, and I know you now, so every time I see you, there are so many versions of Cherry Jones. <laughs> every time you come on stage, and. That's the kind of actor I always wanted to be. Ever since I saw that first production of Our Country's Good, I thought, I, knew who, I know who she is. And then Night of the Iguana, oh no, I don't know who she is. <laughs> That's acting to me. That's acting in a nutshell. It's, I'm, I don't think I need to put Raul Esparza on stage. I want to put whoever that person is on stage and somehow disappear. Hmm. Somehow, I mean, it's obviously you every time you get up there. Um, so I, I've actually said that many times, it's just sort of embarrassing to be sitting here. That's <laughs> 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 true. <laughs> well, as, as you talk about what you put on stage, I want to jump back to something Marcia said, and, and it may have just been in the phrasing, but it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. You said, when, in referring to the scene that Cherry has, where you chose to stay seated. Mm -hmm. How do we know, as an audience member, as somebody who's looking at a play and trying to understand, how it's come together? How do we know whether Cherry Jones made a decision to sit still, or Doug Hughes said, Cherry Jones, sit still? Or John Shanley. Or John Shanley <laughs> said to sit still, says, for that matter. Mm -hmm. so, so not about that specific moment, but, but when you perform, are, 
are there things you're, you're given to do by the director that may not be natural to you that you have to find your way into? Or are there things that are your invention that you have to fight with the director to say, I want to do that? Well, I think it, for me anyway, my experience is that it is this uh, combination of all the minds coming together, the playwright, the director, and the actor, and the, your co-actors, that you come together to find the best way to service the material and the moment. At least that was the way I would like to work and would like somebody to work with me. And I like the idea of trying something that may not be so comfortable. If a director says, would you try not to do that, you know, and instead of immediately arguing with him. It's a very interesting, it's a fascinating thing because everybody's process is a little bit different. And you gain a, a respect for the director if you direct at least once. I mean, I think every actor should direct once and write once. I think every, you know, writer should act once and direct once. Absolutely. And, uh, because you gain a, se a sense of respect for the process when you do that. Have you had a chance to do that? Has anybody here had a chance to direct or have any of you written a play? I directed things in school. I remember learning more from directing classes than I ever learned from acting classes. Mm -hmm. Me too. Because when you try to articulate, uh, I'm very inarticulate about acting, and you have to articulate something to an actor when you're directing, without saying too much, actually, because right. it can be very damaging. Directors who talk for, for hours end up hurting me. Yeah. So it's that skill of a director who knows how to, <laughs> how to say just the right thing. It's an impossibly wonderful it's skill. It's also kind of difficult for, a direct, for an actor sometimes because to be a director because all they really want the other actor to do is to do the performance they have in their exactly. head. <laughs> and that's not what directing is really about. You know? so have to let go of something. Yeah. Or they do the opposite as actors and they're so respectful of the actor's yes, process exactly. that nothing happens. They don't help nothing. you at all. <laughs> that's right. That's true. Uh, I was also going to say just on the topic of who does what in a production. I immediately, when I read a review, I know that the reviewer has no business writing reviews about the theater when he says, well, the director did this in this moment, or the actor did this mm -hmm. in this moment, because you don't know, and it's the least important question you can ask as an audience member, because the whole point is that we have done this together, and you know, whether if you're doing a new play and someone comes up with a line, it doesn't matter, because the entire process created the fertile ground for whoever happened to say at that moment, ooh, sit in the chair. So, it's a good question for actors and practitioners of the craft, uh, how the creative moment is established and what's the best way for you to work in a collaborative way. But it's not the question that I want the audience to ask. Exactly. I, want yeah. the, I want every moment to appear as though it's happening for the first time, that it was not planned at all, that mm. this is the only way it could happen in that moment. Also. I mean, just on a side note, if you ever see anything that I've done that's good, that's probably me. And if you see, <laughs> if you see anything that's kind of off and uncomfortable, it's probably Always. the director or maybe one of the other actors. <laughs> good point. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Or maybe maybe. <laughs> <laughs> never worked together. Yeah, I, yeah. But still, you're close <laughs> by me. Or it could be someone in the audience that really yeah, spoiled I could, I could have <laughs> told Yeah, if it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but talking a little more about the relationship with the director, I'm curious, Raul and, and Billy, you're both in shows that had previous incarnations under the same director. Mm -hmm. how, much, how much freedom did you have in going into those shows to find your way, or was it, were there times where it was about hitting marks that the director knew worked in a prior production? Surprisingly, not a lot. 
One of the reasons I took Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is because I'd never done anything like it. And I thought, well, this will be fun to try this kind of roles. I'm not known for playing sort of charming leading men. It's just not <laughs> the way I seem. It's not where I gravitate. It's not what interests me. And so I thought, this will be a real challenge. Our director is a marvelous director. A Adrian Noble is, is mm. considered one of the world's great directors. Uh, but there is a pressure that happens on a massive musical like this that has almost nothing to do with performance. It, 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 it turns into um, trying to control a locomotive going downhill. Mm. And, you, and, and you start to function with like eight or nine people uh. out of fear, as opposed to like, we've got to make it to first period! <laughs> and then so in rehearsals, Adrian was very willing to, Adrian was very willing to be like, try this, try that, let's try this. Oh, Raul, I love you, this is great. I love you, Adrian. We got to tech, and it's like, cut that, cut that. No, I want it. No, give it back. No, you know, so you start to go, no, I know this works because it worked in London. I say, no, I know I can do this because you hired me. And you, you find a, uh, a happy medium when all those voices start, stop screaming in your ears. Uh, it, it, that's been a, um, it was a real learning experience for me in that sense because it is such a big show that oftentimes things that I created had to go and things he was used to had to go because of our relationship and then the things that he just knew worked. And as you're heading for that deadline, yeah. there are th things you just, you have to land it. And that's that, that's it. So bottom line. And yeah. that's the bottom line. I mean, that's what's different about working on Broadway, I think, as opposed to working off Broadway, working on a play, as opposed to a giant musical. These, these musicals are huge and the money involved is massive. And it does start to feel a little bit like you're not in control anymore and you have, <coughs> you have to hit the bottom line, unfortunately. Mm. Doesn't mean it's always gonna, that doesn't mean it's bad. Sometimes a deadline like that can really. Mm. Um, is, so it, is it fun to ride in the car? It's a ball. <laughs> 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 I feel like a five-year-old. Actually, my, I remember trying to come up with some interesting way to enter. The character didn't really have an entrance at all in, in London. He just sort of came out from behind a machine in the second scene. And I said, I want, I want something interesting to, to do at the top. I said, I want to come in, and then I'll be like Charlie Chaplin and get sucked into the windmill and go, and, OK. <laughs> <laughs> we tried that, and they're like, you're going to break your legs. And then I said, well, uh, maybe I'll float by. And then I was floating by for a while. Now I have a window washing machine that I go by. And they lift me into the air there, during the what overture. What do you mean float by? I'm sitting in a swing. <laughs> I'm sitting on a swing. You, you just, you know, I, just, I need a harness here. I need a harness, uh, yeah. That's what I, I want. Somebody build one of those yes. things. Uh, yes. That's been part of the fun of it. It's like I want to do that. It's like a toy store. You go and you're like, I want a window washing machine, and I'll go floating by it. <laughs> And then, and then one of the actors, uh, in the, uh, Frank Rader, uh, who plays the toy maker, he goes, you just got yourself one hell of an entrance there. And it's like, <laughs> I just kind of made it up. But I go floating up into the air, and the overture's playing, and I feel like a five-year-old. Oh. I'm like, yay, look what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> and then every night we get in that car, and you've got these two little kids behind you. Oh. And they're like, we're going to fly. <laughs> we start crying. We're like, we're going to fly. <laughs> so all your cynicism just goes right out the window. You're like, I love my job. <laughs> <laughs> Veering from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang <laughs> now. <laughs> uh, in my play, we butchered those kids. <laughs> Not quite as fun. No. Uh, uh, oh. I, th I found John, uh, the, the play is, is really tightly constructed. Uh, Martin has done a pretty extraordinary job uh, uh, creating a piece of work that is fantastical and outlandish and really follows a rigid logic. So 
in order to allow the audience into that, you have to know how to shape it. And, you know, when, when, when we started off, I didn't come with any uh, preparation. I don't like to start the process being fully prepared. I like to create it with whoever I'm creating the piece with. And uh, there was quite a bit of text to deal with and stuff. So I was really grateful for somebody Did you who, see it in London? No, I didn't oh. see it in London. Um, and I was so grateful for John, who had this intricate understanding of how to just get the play across. It wasn't a question of interpretation. It wasn't a question of uh, the kind of character I was building. It was a question of making sure the audience could follow the story. And uh, so to that end, uh, the process of creation and the process of, of John's direction was uh, focused entirely on the play. And there, was, there, was, there is a kind of rigidity because that's the piece. That's what the piece demands. Uh, and again, it doesn't have to do with anything that you impose on top of it in terms of creating a character that works for you logically. It has to do with the, the play itself doesn't leave a lot of room for you to um, uh, impose. Things. Isn't that kind of freeing, though? I mean, when you've it's got fantastic. rules, that, yeah, yeah, it's no, it's fantastic. I mean, uh, but by the same token, there was just an enormous amount of material, and uh, it has taken a long time to learn how to focus it in a way that um, you that communicates the, the the story of the play. But I had an interesting experience with Cherry because the Night of the Iguana was done in Chicago first. And I was brought into the company when they came into New York. And almost everybody came from Chicago with the exception of me. So I learned a really painful lesson, actually, mm. which was that my enthusiasm for the play, the part, Cherry, the director, Bob Falls, and the rest of the cast, and the idea of doing that particular part was so exciting to me that I didn't ask some really important questions, which was, what is the director's interpretation of the character right. that I'm about to play? And, and in stepping into a production that's already exactly. constructed, right. And where, where people have decided right. certain basic relationships that are antithetical to what I thought the play was about. Right. And there came this moment and I'm going to tell it on myself, but there came this moment in the rehearsal where I stood there for a moment and I turned to Bob Falls and I said, you just want me to move around this stage to make your pretty pictures. And so he said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a moment at that time, right then and there, what I really actually, uh, looking back, of course, not at the moment, but looking back, I should have said, you know, I'm not right for you because the rest of the experience was so not fulfilling for me because we had a very different point of view about what the character was about and what the play was about in relationship to the character. So, and then I had to then proceed to play out the, the remainder of the run and everything in a very frustrating, and it really was painful. But a good director can help you in a situation like that, I found two experiences that I had uh, going into a massive musical. Uh, my first big musical was Evita. And uh, uh, when I was learning the show here in New York, the people putting it together had an idea about what Evita should be and how Che functioned in it. That every time I tried to do something, and I'd never done a major musical like this before, every time I tried to do something, they'd say, no, that's not right. And at one point, I was told, go upstage and do this. 
And I said, why? I said, well, Mandy did that. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> and it worked, by God. And I said, okay. And I said, well, what, what is he doing? They said, well, you're summoning the set. And I oh. <laughs> and I said, I, I'm summoning the summoning set? The set. Yeah. Okay. And there was this flag that sort of came billowing down. It was supposed to be triumphant. And then sometimes the flag would fall on the floor, and I'd go, <laughs> but I said to the, to the team, I said, I'm not the man for you. This is, I don't understand this. And then Hal Prince came in, because he was working on Parade of Time, and he said, let him do what he wants. Yeah, that's... And boom. And then the, the other uh, time that that happened was going into Cabaret, replacing in Cabaret. The production exists. It is what it is. You can't do much inside of it, you think. And then someone like Sam Mendes will come around, and Sam actually gave me a note that said, what you did last night... When I saw it, throw it away. I loved it. Tomorrow, if, if you give the same performance tomorrow that you gave tonight for me, you will have failed yourself and your talent. <coughs> I want you to walk out on that stage and break all the rules that, that they taught you when they asked you to replace in this. Because he kept saying, you've been so inventive inside the confines of what the show is, I want you to go further. It was terrifying. I walked out the next night going, I have go no left instead of right, go right, go for it. But it doesn't mean that all my choices the next night were good. But when a director like that yeah. comes and says, no, you're not making pretty pictures for me. I love you and what you've done. It's well, that's what a great director does, too, is he tells <clears throat> you how you can function uh, in a safe space. Mm -hmm. He says, this is what we're doing. This is how the play is focused. This is how the musical's focused. You as an actor and as an interpreter of the craft then understand intuitively or uh, logically what space you have to grow in that so as to not uh, divert the story, so as to not divert the style and the form. And then you can become a real participant. And a good director will do that because then you can take it further than he could imagine. Yeah. So consequently, if you have a number of artists doing that, then the play is something that nobody ever anticipated. The playwright didn't anticipate. <laughs> um, and it, it can become a production that uh, you know, really thrills and invigorates an audience. And I want to say about the night of the iguana, because it was painful to, to witness what was going on, not only with you, Marsha, but with the entire production. Because, um, and, and I'm crazy about Bob, but mm. he, he, he failed us all on that production because any good director, I don't care if there's one replacement or six replacements, if you've had a few months off and you come back to something, it is your responsibility as the director to start from scratch. You start over. If you've got a, a reasonable amount of time, you start over. We had a month off with doubt Mm -hmm. Four characters, and we all came back. And we, I won't say that we started from scratch, but we were there to learn every new thing we could right. in the amount of time we had before we went before the next audience, you know. Well, and, that's and a really important point, <clears throat> this idea of taking time off and then coming back to something. I mean, the English get to do that a lot, especially in Shakespeare. They'll play mm. a part over and over in different productions. Mm. And I had that opportunity with a play called Amazing Grace. I uh, premiered it in Pittsburgh. We did it there, and then a year went by, and then we brought it into a little off-Broadway theater here in New York. And the smallest amount of time off you come back with so much more information in some weird way. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a really exciting process. Yeah. But I think that, um, in all fairness to, to Bob Falls, what I was also referring to is that I think the actor has to 
ask the tough questions. Mm -hmm. You can't be just so enthusiastic, even if you're dying to do the part, because you can really hurt. It can hurt after a while if you're not on the same page at the get-go, because you have this preconceived idea of how you want to do it, perhaps, or what the play is about. Can I ask, has, it, has anyone worked with Romanians? Yes, <laughs> yes. lots of them. Okay, so, <laughs> because I've done a, have done a lot of plays directed by Romanians, and they would not understand this leave conversation. You, uh, <laughs> <laughs> leave you too late. Uh, yes, when you come to this part there, you put your hand up like this and you exactly. grumble. <laughs> but the, the reason I bring it up, the reason I bring it up is having worked with them and having done, and also with Peter Brook, uh, productions that they had done before with an entirely new cast and being told every move. Wow. Every gesture. And right. loving it. Oh. And because loving it. it is an entirely different process. And if you are able to give yourself over to it and discover your own creativity within those confines, then they back off a little bit because something happens that, you know, is fun. But it's, it's a, just a different way of working, which is they're very used to. And it's anathema to most of us. But I've, ha I've given some of my best performances that were, in fact, my performances. I wasn't doing, you know, uh -huh. mm -hmm. Radovic, whatever it was that did it in, uh, you know, Slovenia. But uh, he's good, though. Yeah, yeah, we like him. Simon <laughs> Red Noses. <laughs> but it's just, it's. But you have to. It is a discipline, and some people temperamentally are just. Uh, I, I did uh, Kevin Klein's Hamlet the first time he did Kevin. Uh, right. The first time he did Hamlet, and Leave You Truly directed, and Kevin is absolutely temperamentally not able to work that way. And that's a perfectly valid thing. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very conflicted, uh, unpleasant, really interesting. That's <laughs> 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 so what Marcia's saying, too, about knowing what you're getting into. If you understand, because, and I feel this, and I say this without um, trying to diminish, but I feel as though I'm a secondary artist, maybe mm -hmm. a, a tertiary artist in many respects, because there's the playwright, and then there's the director. I thrive when I know what I'm supposed to do as a tool in the production. Mm -hmm. That's when I really feel confident and comfortable. Well, that's at least when I have an experience that I enjoy and, mm -hmm. and feel like it's the most successful. And that could come from many different ways of working. It could come from being, I went, when I was doing Elephant Man with Sean Mathias, the entire company created the production. For better or worse, it was our production. And that was a thrilling environment. And then I went and did uh, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui with Simon McBurney. And Simon works in a completely different way. He's sort of from the Romanian uh, uh, school. And I remember the first time I opened my mouth, and I was playing a supporting part in that, I remember the first time I opened my mouth as a member of the company to express a point of view on the play, uh, a play that I had done before. Um, there was a long, I said, you know what, <laughs> it, it's sort of as though blah, 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 and I went into some crap, and Simon looked at me and he was like, <clears throat> yes, right, of course. <laughs> now, <laughs> and I slowly melted back and I had to readjust my sense of how I was going to be a tool in this production. And once I did, I, you know, it was fine. But it, When actors find that balance inside those kinds of productions, it can be thrilling. There's this yeah. actress I love named Jenny Bacon who uh, I saw do a lot of work for Mary Zimmerman in Chicago. And Mary's productions are structured to within an inch of their life. They are mm. so visually stunning. Some actors don't really uh, uh, fly in there, but Jenny can. And she calls it a sort of soul-erasing experience. 
It's not about Jenny coming on stage and, and sort of giving the performance of her life. She understands how she fits in Mary's world. And the, the visuals are so stunning. And the experience, I think, is being completed in the audience, is what's happening, oh. in a way, with mm -hmm. those kinds of directors and mm -hmm. those kinds of productions. There's, a, there's that third element of the audience is now going to fill in all the blanks, and the audience gets to have the emotional response to the show. And maybe the actor doesn't. And, and Jenny was saying it was a, a hard time for her to learn that but she ultimately did. Mm -hmm. What I want from a great director, I mean, there are not that many great directors. I've worked with a, f a few people that I think are extraordinary. The best probably was Frank Galati. Hmm. And Frank Galati was so thrilling because he does that thing that I want all directors to do. As I said earlier, he doesn't talk very much, if at all. His enthusiasm is boundless when he's first putting the production together and you spend two weeks around the table and you're all in the same room and, and it's like going to the best school you've ever been mm. to and he's weeping over the play and all it can be. And he's just, oh, it's so great. No. It's like a giant, wonderful teddy bear. And then you contribute and contribute and contribute and then he's in charge. Mm. That's it. You, you, you get up from the table and he's like, go here, go here, across there. And you remember that thing we thought of there? You do that here. And, and you just, and he's creating a world that you know you've helped invent, mm. but the world is happening around you there are rules and regulations, and the space is functioning to help you tell the story, but it is so structured. I was working on a new play with him that he was adapting. It's so structured that you feel, that's why I said that, you feel like you can't do anything wrong, because the rules are so clear, and you kind of help create them with him, but he is so completely in charge. And he doesn't say very much. He, he, he will, by then, he will just sort of... He's a painter. Yes. Mm. He'll yeah. just articulate very simply what he needs you to do. Mm -hmm. And, and what you need to focus on as an actor. I found that very helpful. I can intellectualize far too much. And he got me right out of my head, mm. you know. This issue of freedom and structure and editing, David, almost everybody that talks about spam a lot makes it sound as if you guys are just up there having a good time. I can't imagine what those rehearsals were like. But how much, <laughs> how much do you have freedom every night to do things in that show? How much was there of you got to try everything you wanted in the rehearsal hall and then suddenly, as we talk about great directors, Mike Nichols finally coming in and saying, nope, sorry. Um, the rehearsals were a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and the performances are a lot of fun. And uh, we stretch the bounds of what you would call professionalism to as far as we can get away with. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, the, the great thing about it is, it is completely structured. It is absolutely the audience's experience and our experience doing it is one of spontaneous combustion and joy and fun and ridiculousness. And with very few exceptions, in fact, really one exception, which is a single speech that Hank Azaria has where there is called for a, an improvised line and he changes it every night and we all look forward to seeing what the hell he's going to come up with and then we <laughs> either laugh or don't. But the, pressure. the process <laughs> was very similar to what you described, Raul, as the ideal process, which was a lot of sort of free form. And we had a script, but the script changed a lot because it was a new piece, finding a storyline, playing around a lot. Mike not saying that much. Mm -hmm. uh, encouraging here and there, uh, get to Chicago, get to sort of up on its feet, suddenly he's saying more mm -hmm. and, and um, starting to cut and starting to do all that stuff. But the thing that I most remember is when we were in performances, his note, which was, uh, as he calls, killing babies, which is uh, your favorite moment, mm. uh, don't do it. Mm -hmm. He said, if you take it out, you can put it back. But as he, he also called, that little squeak and turn that you know if you do it, you get a laugh, mm. don't do it. And that's the thing that gave us 
the freedom to know we don't have to turn our head on this moment because that's how you got the laugh on that moment. Maybe that is how you got the laugh. Maybe if you don't do that, you won't get the laugh. Who cares? There's a million laughs in this show. That's not why we're there. Mm -hmm. And so he created this atmosphere where it, the play is every single night, uh, and, and often on matinees, totally alive. <laughs> is there a natural competitive nature amongst all of you for those laughs? Because Thank I God think no. it, oh, no, no, seriously. a lot of time actors do do that. Is you know? there competitive competition amongst well, the women they, of Steel Magnolias? Y well, uh, no. Uh, Interestingly you. enough, no. But but there is that I could sense periodically especially when we first started the performances, there was one conversation, and I won't mention names, where somebody was getting a laugh because of the way they were saying a straight line, and the person that had the quote-unquote joke or the laugh wasn't getting it, and that was a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, yeah, that happens, yes. So much because for the months. So <laughs> but it was, it's, it's fascinating because comedy is really timing. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes not the jo the line itself. So as we, the thing that I, I, I was curious about was because as you get comfortable with the material, you find your way through it. You start to, you start to feel your wings. You start to feel your character more and more. And so all kinds of new stuff starts to develop. And I would think for a director, it would be fun to come back and see how a show has grown. I mean, that was my experience when I directed. You come back after three or four weeks and see what they're doing. And sometimes you've got to rein them in, but other times it's a whole wonderful thing because you just had time to do it. And it's, you, you don't always know what you're... I remember when I was doing The Heiress, <clears throat> I was trying so hard to keep it simple and pure and, and, and nothing Baroque. I was just, you know, I, and I was so sure I was doing that. I was sure. <laughs> and Jerry Gutierrez came back. And um, I had a line in the, the final scene of the play where I would turn to Franny Sternhagen, Aunt Pennyman, and, and say, uh, uh, let us have some lemonade. And it was a line that was a put down to her and basically to say, shut up, was the, the line. But I could do it in a very uh, civilized way and the meaning was very clear. And Jerry came back and, and I was sure he was going to sweep in and say, oh, my pure darling, my little <laughs> angel. You know? And he came in and he said, you know that line, let us have some lemonade? I said, yes. He said, it sounds like you have Barbara Stanwyck in your throat with her hand on her hip. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's so strange. <laughs> we can't always, we you can't don't always, know. You, uh, don't. you know. So no. That's yeah. so interesting. We think we know, and we just no, don't. No, you don't know how you're coming across. You do it that many across. times, it's just, uh, yeah. And yeah. sometimes well, you think you're giving thing. a great performance, and the people out there, you're like, this is exactly what I want to do, and people yeah. come backstage and say, what were you doing tonight? That wasn't, yeah. Yeah. and then you think you're lousy, and the director exactly. says, that was wonderful, and you have yeah. no idea why. And you have no idea why. Uh, comedies, you, you, you stand there, and you, and you, if somebody breathes at the wrong moment on stage, it, it can kill a laugh, and you don't know why. And, and, and then, but if you try to hold on so that nobody breathes, then everybody's frozen on stage, and that kills the laugh, too. Uh, I can't imagine a show that should be as wild as a Monty Python sketch, you know, which needs so much freedom, and how structured that obviously has to be. You know what it really, uh, I think, needs and has, and it goes back to what you said about competition, is we have, I would say, no competition on stage. It is the most 
mutually supportive, uh, not the most, I've been actually fortunately with a lot of mutually supportive casts, but it is, it is a group of people who understand when it's their moment and understand when it's someone else's and love as much to pass right. the ball as they uh -huh. do. So you never get into that because that, especially in, in this kind of context, just turns ugly and it's a pain in the ass and people start doing the crab walk upstage to see who can yeah, get further right, upstage. Right, right, right. 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 We don't have any of that and yeah. it's, uh, it's Just really the nice. lean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we keep talking about the directors, and earlier on, I think Terry pointed out, what was it, John Patrick Shanley's choice. In the process, how much do you hear from the writer directly? When do you go to the writer to talk about what you're doing, or do you? Or does it all flow through the director? Uh, especially in cases like yours where you are playing, while this exact story may not be uh, an incident from John Shanley's life, certainly it is based on people and experiences that he had. So how deep do you go with the author versus just taking the director's interpretation? Well, the only uh, real active connection that we had with Shanley, what, what, Brian uh, had to know his backstory mm. and uh, to be able to play the priest. And so Shanley. Do you know the backstory? You're going to get there. <laughs> You're going to get there. Oh, okay. Shanley, Shanley and Doug and Brian sat down one day and sequestered themselves <laughs> in the sacristy. And, and they uh, decided absolutely the entire oh, cool. backstory. And then, of course, they wouldn't tell us. Oh, and they wonderful. can't tell us. I mean, we can't know. And it's, uh -huh. so, it's so cool that we don't know. So you know. can play with complete honesty every night. It doesn't, you know, you, yeah. yeah, your character wouldn't know. Yeah. And, and I have a final line at the end of the play, which is completely ambiguous. It can be taken anyway. And I have a feeling in talking to Shanley about this line, it's like talking to Pinter about certain lines of mm. his. It doesn't really matter to him what the actor plays, because it's so actor-proof. Because of course... Because it's so ambiguous, it allows true. the it's audience so to true. take away... It's stunning, that yeah. last line. And so I can do whatever I want to, and it may be exactly opposite to what right. Shanley thought as he wrote it, but, but it doesn't also matter. it creates this immediate dialogue for the audience, because yeah. I went with friends, and we spent the rest of the evening talking about what that line meant, which then played back into what the whole play is about, which I thought was quite brilliant yeah. playwriting on his yeah. part. Yeah. You think you know something about an, uh, a, a play when you read it, and then it turns out to be different also in, in the performance of it. Watching another actor interpret it, uh, Pillow Man was like that for me when I read it. So I was just curious about it. And then seeing it, I had one opinion about what had happened when I read it. And when I saw it, I had an entirely different opinion. And for days afterwards, I was like, wait a minute. And I, and I said, is it the actor who came up with that, or is that in the play? And I missed it when I read it. Was it so, good? Yeah, it was good. It was great. <laughs> I like it better now. It was you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. But Open it right up for me. But, <laughs> but doesn't it depend upon the playwright? There are playwrights who are very specific about their plays and to the point where they can be anal retentive about it. And then, I mean, I remember there, whether it's apocryphal or not, there was a famous playwright um, who literally, when somebody said, we've got to cut this big section, that he brought it back in the next day and it had no punctuation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
<laughs> but, you know, I think it depends. I mean, having worked with Pinter to Neil Simon to then, of course, Dead Playwrights, you can't really talk to, so you just have the director. But when you are somebody like Chuck Mee, Charles Mee, who literally doesn't really want to say too much, mm. you know, so not, you know, where they kind of sit back and they don't really want to say too much. Pinter certainly doesn't want to say too mm -hmm. much, and yet he knows when he sees it what he thinks is right or what isn't working, but he doesn't really get into any discussion, and especially with old times, I mean, mm -hmm. which is one of the most enigmatic, or w certainly one of the most enigmatic. But you get the other side of that where we had Larry Kramer in rehearsals for Normal Heart, and Larry won't, he, he'll, let, he'll say, I'll be quiet, I'll be quiet. <laughs> and he'll sort of sit in the back of the room, and you'll be rehearsing a scene. I remember there was a day one of the producers came in who he didn't like. And we're rehearsing the scene, and all of a sudden you hear, would you please leave? <laughs> You're spoiling the scene. You are. You are. <laughs> <laughs> and we were, what's going on? <laughs> leave, leave, leave. <laughs> Everybody just sort of stopped, and David S. Bjornsson went, what, what's going on over there? <laughs> or, or he'll watch. The, he's, we'll be doing the scene, and you think, oh, Larry's really into it. And he'll go, that chair squeaks. <laughs> Change the chair. And there was a preview performance where the chair was still squeaking, and he ran down in front of the audience after the show during Normal Heart, took the chair and said, it squeaks, it squeaks, and threw it on the floor and jumped up and down. <laughs> 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 I'm not kidding. No wonder we love what we do. <laughs> okay, well, so that's not milk. So <laughs> volunteers. Don't you want to go up to Martin McDonough and say, do you talk to your folks? <laughs> <laughs> I met his mother. He was there uh, every day uh, during rehearsals. And um, it, he, he was there for clarification, which was really useful and constructive. Um, but a, a writer creates in a completely different environment. Uh, it's a solitary environment, mostly. And so what they know how to do is talk to themselves about what works and what doesn't work. A director works in a collaborative environment. So even if they know, even if the writer knows precisely uh, what the problem is and what the solution is, it, the, the manner in which you communicate that is relevant, particularly to an actor. It's relevant because you get things in your head that sometimes you can't get out of your head. Sometimes, uh, sometimes they might be commenting on something that's a particular problem of yours and as, as an actor that will stir a kind of self-consciousness. So a director is privy to all of the things, a good director, and most directors really, are privy to the ways that you communicate issues. Um, so I found in, in terms of discussing character development, in terms of discussing the way specific things are played, it's not as constructive for me to hear precisely what the writer thinks. It's better for it to go through the filter of the director. Um, and, uh, and they were great at that relationship, John and Martin were. And uh, Martin's notes were very precise about the text and about what worked and what didn't. And um, he was there as a, uh, um, uh, to, to remind you about all of the punctuation, about the precision of the language. Um, and I was going to say something. Oh, yeah, I met his mother. Yeah, <laughs> I did. And uh, I think Martin feels like there's a, there's a line in the play where I say, um, uh, I think people only write about, I think people who only write about what they know only write about what they know because they're too stupid to make anything up. And I think there's a spirit of that in Martin. I think he really enjoys the imagination. I think he really enjoys 
the construct of this uh, box that he can tell any kind of story he wants, that he can really poke and prod people in the most provocative and exciting ways. And he happens to be very crafty at it. He happens to be a very good craftsman as well. So um, once you meet him and get to know him, you're, you're not so concerned for your own well-being <laughs> and uh, the well-being of his immediate family. Yeah. <laughs> To change gears now entirely, there's always a sense as, you, as actors go along in their career that we, we start to believe we know the roles they can or should play. And how do you make sure that people continue to think of you for as many different roles as possible. I mean, I'm going to give an example using David. David mentioned earlier that he'd done Hamlet with Leave You Chule. And it's very easy for someone who's been on a sitcom for as long as, as you were, for everybody to suddenly believe you are that person. And yet, you've done, you've done several Shakespeare's, you've done an extraordinary, you've worked with all these Romanians, apparently. Um, <laughs> how do you now get back out into doing the same breadth of work and make sure that you still can get the challenges that you want? Uh, you know, for me, it was to come back to New York because fortunately there are people in the business now who knew me then, knew me before, uh, understood that I could do other things, and uh, it's part of what makes me feel like I'm back home now, um, that, that the TV image is very powerful, you know, in the film world, in the television world, you know, across the country, uh, and at the mall. But uh, to come back here and, and uh, just have people who, who know I can do other things, that's, I mean, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm doing this show. And I'm working in the show, like with Mike Nichols, who I've worked with over the years in theater and in film, doing other kinds of things. And also, sometimes you just have to beat down doors and audition. I mean, that's what I did for Steel Magnolias. Because, you know, if friends of mine are out in Los Angeles and they hear that I'm doing Steel Magnolias, they think I'm doing another part in the play than the part I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Because that, that isn't how I'm seen, because this thing that you're talking about is so prevalent in film. And basically the issue was, well, Marcia is such a nice person, how can she possibly play Weezer? And that's not to say that they didn't have an imagination. They were open to the idea, but I had to come in and convince them. And was it even tough getting seen for the part? Did your agents really no, have to work? Fortunately, I knew a producer. <laughs> 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 but I didn't know, and I knew the playwright, but socially, I didn't, you know what I mean. And, but I didn't know the director, and the director didn't know me. And, um, and so I said, I'll, I'll come in and audition. And I, I had to make a case for it. And then I got Shirley MacLaine to call them. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't use a phone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Cherry, do you do you you've done you've done a wide array of roles, but are there still things out there that you have to convince people you're right for? Well, I don't know who in the hell thought I could do this one. I well, mean, except <laughs> you, it's not your first nun role this year. You also were on a TV series. Shh. <laughs> I don't want people to think that I've got something going with uh, <laughs> that this is going to be the new the new. Well, thing. exactly. In fact, I was offered a third nun this year. I said, get out of here. <laughs> 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 but, 
But I, you know, a, an acquaintance called and said, you know, I so admire that you took this role not thinking a bit about your career. But I just never, you know, you, I don't know how Doug Hughes thought I could do this role. And I read it, I loved it, I was like, yes, I want to do it. And then we got about a month before rehearsal started, and I thought, there is no way in the world I'm going to be able to pull this off, you know. But because it was Doug Hughes, I was able to, because he just spoon-fed me so much of the character uh, and, and made sure that I became increasingly appalling as the, <laughs> the weeks of rehearsals went on. But um, you, you don't, I think as an actor, you don't, you don't, think about, I, I've never thought about my career, ever. I've just, I've depended on the kindness of artistic directors and, and, you know, and the network that you build through a career of just knowing people who think, I, I've, I've seen this glimmer in her eye, or, or Doug knowing, I've seen that righteous anger when she talks about George Bush, or, you know, whatever it was, <laughs> you know, that, that he, he, people realize that you can, uh, they, they see a spark that they know will work with the role. And, and so you can't, I mean, maybe now I'll be doomed to playing prison matrons for the rest of my life. But, you know, I've gotten to play a lot of heroines, and I bet there's some pretty fun prison matrons out there. I don't know. But, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what comes next, but I, I would like to think it would be a, you know, a very tight 1950s silhouette with some nice stilettos. <laughs> <laughs> and Raul, going into light musical comedy after roles like Cabaret and Taboo and and well, Normal it was part Art. of the reason I was attracted to it was that it was so different. But was it was it something your agents had to push to get you seen? Was it something? No, they you called. They saw? called me. They called me. They wanted me to come in and meet with Adrian, and and I actually was the one who went. Oh, this I'm not right. No, no, this is not me. I I, I can't do this. It's silly. And I kept seeing Dick Van Dyke in my head, and and then I said, Oh no, no, it's not me. And uh, the, the secret, I think, to Chitty Bang Bang is that it mostly requires a great deal of innocence and a lot of joy in the playing of it. And we can all find that in ourselves. When I got past what my own conceptions were about what mm. the part should be and, and how complicated or whatever it should be and the things I had to get rid of, um, I thought they were a little crazy for calling me in the first place. Mm. And then I went, oh, no, may maybe there's something I can do here that they see that I didn't know I had. There are parts you get drawn to, for myself sometimes I find myself drawn to parts that are, that live in extremes of either joy or sadness that I don't in my life. I'm not saying it's therapy, it's just really kind of fun to get up there and go run the gamut of emotions that you would never wish on anyone you knew or yourself in your life. That's sort of wonderful, that's the whole point we go to the theater sometimes, is to live in that sort of dangerous and fearful place. But generally, what attracts me to a role and what attracts me to any real theater and what I think should be the, the, the standard is something that's good, something that moves you, something that you feel like I absolutely must get out there and do this. And you can't do, as, as Cherry says, I, I've, had a, I've been very inexperienced in terms of my career because I, I've never been able to sit down and say, well, the good career move would be to do this next because I just did that. And it seems to have happened, but it really was because I was attracted to the idea of a part or what might be challenging or what seemed so good about the piece or the people you were going to be working with. Um, and then I think, and then the other side of it too was that after having done Taboo and Normal Heart, and then I did a Sidney Lumet film where I played a crack addict murderer. So 
after that, after we wrapped on that in December, and then I thought, I, I need to do something where I don't leave work thoroughly depressed about my life, you know. <laughs> and you do, you leave Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in a great mood, and that's, there's something to be said for that, too. You, mm. you do carry these characters, I know I've said this to you before, you carry these characters around with you a little bit, the world you live in in the play, or at least I do. It affects mm. my life a little bit, and you just, it's nice to go to uh, work and, and leave in a good mood. <laughs> How do you get the theme song out of your head? You can't. <laughs> I'm, singing, I'm singing it right now, actually. <laughs> I think we're all singing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> and the other killer is this song called Posh that Phil Bosco does. Now that is a thing, seeing Phil Bosco running around on stage, you know, singing this song. There's a song called Posh that they play in the curtain call, I would say, 7,000 times <laughs> over and over. And you leave the theater going, the posh, posh, traveling life, the tra traveling head, thank you for coming to the show, and where's my car, I need to have dinner. And it just sort of takes you around. It just f takes you through your life. It wakes you up in the morning and puts you to sleep. <laughs> okay, but to pursue now, something you said, that when you do a show, you take some of it home. Billy, do you take the show home? <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean it, I, and I don't mean this show specifically, but when you're doing, whether you're doing a play, doing a film, how much of it do you get it all out when you're doing it and you're free, and how much of it do you internalize, and, and does it become a part of your life for as long as you're doing it? Um, I, I really haven't found a solution to that. I don't, it, it changes from thing to thing. Um, and sometimes I'm surprised by the extent to which something affects me, and uh, sometimes I'm glad when something doesn't affect me uh, uh, in some sort of negative way. Um, with this piece specifically, I, there's a kind of hope in it. Uh, and I don't know precisely what it is, uh, but there, there, there is a kind of hope in it that uh, is the last moment that I experience on stage. And for some reason, the last moment is relevant. Uh, there, um, and uh, there's an exuberance in doing something that I really like, that I appreciate, and that I'm, you know, I feel tremendously grateful to be doing this part in this play. I think it's my great good fortune, so I carry that with me a lot. But in general, do you, do you, any of you find yourself otherwise taking the role home? I, I remember, yeah, a little bit. I, I remember a playwright yeah. that I knew who uh, very often would write plays with his girlfriend in mind, and it was very interesting to notice how many times he was writing parts where she played a femme fatale or a prostitute. <laughs> and <laughs> she took her work oh, home you know, I want to add something to that. So, <laughs> I wanted to add something to that. The process of doing theater is uh, different for me in this respect from doing film, in that I get to complete that journey in an evening. The, the play typically is, uh, has a life of its own, and so there is uh, a gratification to finishing it that I typically leave it there, not during rehearsal. During rehearsal, all the pieces are kind of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, painfully floating around, and, uh, but then once you're doing it, and uh, you know, in the regimen of doing eight shows a week, Every night I complete that journey, and that leaves me uh, pretty well um, uh, exhausted of the material. When I'm doing a film, it's three months of constantly living in uh, whatever um, temperature setting the, the screenwriter has made for you. And that can be really debilitating, I've found, uh, the, the difficult ones, the emotionally difficult ones. Uh, Marcia, how about you? Yeah, I find that um, I do wind up taking stuff 
home with me, that, and I'm not even fully aware of it. Not uh, props. We're not talking about no. props. <laughs> <laughs> no. She's opening her own beauty salon. Let's clear that up. Miss <laughs> <laughs> uh, Klepto here. <laughs> I have an entire beauty shop. Oh, come on, you have to take something from every show you're in. Wear that brush with. <laughs> but um, and uh, most of the time, I'm unaware of it until somebody says something to me. Like when I was married, you know, or, or before I start a project, something starts to happen to me. And it was, you know, my husband that said to me, uh, I, I freaked out on, in Ireland of all places. And, um, and he said, oh, please, you're just, it's two weeks before you start working. You're always like this. So it's like, oh, oh, okay, I don't have to worry so much. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but, and then just yesterday, I got a massage between shows, which I had never done. Usually I just kind of chill. And I got a massage between shows, and the massage no, therapist knows me well and said, you, don't, you seem a little down. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a little down. Not too tired, though, and everything. He said, well, does it have anything to do with the idea that you're... And I said, I just feel really bad about you know, everything. And he said, well, does it have any... He said, don't you think it has something to do with the fact that you're playing somebody who's 10 years older than you are, and she's in a no-win situation? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I thought, oh, yeah, you know. I yeah. <laughs> so I woke up this morning feeling much better. <laughs> so I, I know I take some of it home. I, I did a series of three things back to back. I can't even... I was sitting here thinking, what were they? And I can only think of two, but I know there were three, but I've just blocked the third one out. But three very grim plays back to back. And, and at the end, I was deeply depressed. I was depressed. And, and I would, I, I, finally, I thought, I have got to, I remember Jack O'Brien said, honey, we can take care of that depression. I said, how? He said, a comedy. <laughs> right. That'll do it. It and, does. And it really did. And I did do something much lighter and silly and frivolous afterwards. And it was just, it was heaven. Yeah, much better. It, you do just, uh, because it became a chore to go to work at night. Hmm. Because where I had to go every night was so, into such a dark place. And you just get tired of killing off everyone you know and love. And, yeah, you know, all the, all <laughs> the but if you're in a good you mood, you don't want to, right. you know, uh, yeah, abandon right. that. Uh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the hard part seems, and I don't know how you, how you guys feel about it, the hard part for me is a matinee to an evening of a particularly powerful thing, like normal heart. And even Tick, Tick, Boom to some extent, which is interesting for me, that to go from what Ned Weeks does not know at the beginning of the play, to all the horrible things he learns and lives through at the end, and then to do it again. Mm. Yeah. And so you have to forget what you just experienced, and you cannot hold on to those emotions, and you can't, and just back to a place of What do you peace. do to do that? I go for long walks. I, yeah. I, I buy myself a book. I eat something I really like, and I listen to music. I just, and I, and I, sit and laugh with friends, like just to clear my head. That's, that's what I'll do. I won't think about the play. It, it's um, also, to me, not only is it probably one of the biggest challenges we have, it's also perhaps the greatest pleasure of the theater, which mm. is you must, if you're really going to have it happen again that night, even though you know it happened earlier that day, you actually have to be in that moment. You aren't always, no. and you can't always be there, but it's such pleasure to have that imaginative act that for you and them and between all of you, yeah, we know we said this before, but not this way. Mm -hmm. not th that's mm -hmm. just, that's And if you magic. find other actors who want to run with you in that capacity, as I've also, I like, t I don't, 
No, I like to change up every show. I really do. And some people really hate me for that, and some people like it. That's true. There are actors who enjoy it. I'm like it, that also. And actors Within the don't. confines of the blocking, the character, everything right. that's been described, everything that you've worked on, I still like to come out and see what... What tonight is. What tonight is. Yeah. Whereas some actors get really thrown by that. They're very frightened by that. I think it's a road map. I'm trying to get from Miami to Chicago, but I could go by way of Tennessee. You know, it's okay. Or I Not the to... fastest. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe stop in Atlanta for some food. You know, I just, it's that. And some people really are frightened by that. But that's the only way I know how to pretend I've never done it before, is that I even trick myself to, to imagine that I have no idea what the next line is sometimes. Just the, when someone else is talking, I find that helps me a lot. Uh, uh, particularly at the beginning yeah, of the Yeah, because anticipation. Place. Do you find that anticipation is a, a big issue for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Just to keep it new. Because pretty soon I found myself, and especially I think in a comedy because so much of it is about timing and everything. So you find yourself starting to look at the person who's about to speak mm -hmm. as opposed to mm -hmm. waiting mm -hmm. until they speak. And, you, and then I have to have that serious talk again when I you go back. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like... Mm -hmm. So it's new every time. And you also start find yourself, as I said earlier, not moving in a particular way or being aware of the things that you did last night that will get that laugh that you know is in the line, and then you have to throw it away. You mm -hmm. have to, have mm -hmm. to. And I, I, I say that I trick myself into tr pretending I don't know what the next line is, but the, the best thing for me about the little film experience I had was that I felt so relieved that all I had to do was listen mm. to the other actors. Uh, if they were good, I didn't have to make a choice. I could just simply listen to them and it would just happen. That was a shock to me because on stage, you hear the same line over and over every night and it starts to lose its meaning and you have to play a little game with yourself so that uh, you really don't know what's coming. Uh, and, and, and you don't know what tonight will be. I don't know what, what the audience will give us. I really believe that the audience completes that performance every mm, evening. I do too. In a way. If they're going to sit there, and sometimes they do, and... And then the feet go up on the edge of the stage, and, you're, and I, get, I get angry because it's like you want a good show, you have to participate. Because if you're going to tell me where to go tonight, I don't know. It's the only way we can keep it fresh. And then they leave saying, oh, that wasn't very good. Well, you weren't very good either. <laughs> but, but, but the opposite is also true. When they're, when they're wonderful and they laugh at something you never imagined was funny or they, or they respond emotionally to something, then that helps guide you again through the play in a way you never thought. <laughs> now, no one will ever come see me do anything ever again. Yeah. Are you belligerent at the curtain call? <laughs> Boom! Boom. <laughs> I think I did. There was one performance of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang recently where the audience was absolutely just dead quiet and I came out to bow at the end. And, you know, I mean, there's confetti and there's streamers and there's someone who got shot out of the sky in a flying car and there are dogs and the entire audience was like <laughs> and I came down the bow and I, and I came up going oh. <laughs> I, I felt it I went oh my god but I, I couldn't <laughs> sort of help myself and going what is the matter with you I mean that's how we got yeah. that's, as as, that's as good as it gets people <laughs> So, <laughs> so we're talking about keeping the performance itself fresh, but it's worth noting that for any actor, it is a very physical experience, as well as an emotional and intellectual experience, and every night, at a certain moment, you have to summon this. And I sometimes hear actors talking about, oh my God, it's 6.30, and I have to do this again. 
how do you, what's your process as you roll into it? What do you need to do for yourselves to get yourself ready to start hitting those moments and to indeed find those emotions on cue? Do you need to chill out? Do you need to do activities? What, what, what's the, what's the run-up? I have a quick, just a real oh, okay. quick one, because mine is so quick. I, I get there almost at half hour every night. <laughs> I'm always just within, you know, a couple of seconds of being late, late but I never am, ever. Oh. I really am not. But I realized I, need, in the wings. Yeah. <laughs> I never need, for, for Sister Aloysius, I need absolutely no prep because Sister Aloysius would not sit in her dressing room. <laughs> you know, so the less time I have to get ready, the more time I, I, I it's, a better, it's a better use of my time in preparing for her because she is on a schedule and she has no time. Mm. She's a principal of a school. Uh, she's in, an, in a very uh, uh, strict order of nuns, and, and so I just breeze in there, I brush my eyebrows down, I throw on my habit and tie my bonnet to where I have a callus on my chin now, and, and off, off I go. But I, it, I learned very quickly that that was going to be my prep for her. Other, other roles, I'd be there, you know, an hour, an hour, 15 before. I, I'm not one of those people who ever gets there at an hour and a half because I love my own life too much to go that early to the theater. But I, I, it's, a, it's been wonderful to just sort of breeze in. And it's only 90 minutes, so, you know, I mean... <laughs> You're upstairs at Angus Mackendoe before right. we know it. <laughs> other people? Um, it varies from performance to performance. Uh, this show in particular um, requires a lot vocally. And uh, uh, so the way that I achieve that is by a physical warm-up. So I give myself 20 minutes and uh, just try to find as much uh, comfort and relaxation in wherever I am that day and uh, make sure my voice is in the best possible place it can be. Uh, but I don't do anything in terms of um, uh, psychological warm-up until I get on stage. Uh, I, I really, I, I just want to be poised. Mm -hmm. I know the play. I know how it works. Um, I know typically um, how to tell the best version of the story. I, I can't always do that, but uh, the, the best way for me to achieve that is to simply participate in the first moment in as poised and relaxed the way as I can, and uh, I do that with a physical warm-up. Yeah, I usually go to the theater about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour before curtain time, even if uh, I don't come on right away, which in this play I don't. But, but I find that I have to sort of put the day away. But hmm. the question that you asked, was, which was really interesting to me, which is if you have the feeling of, oh, God, it's 6.30 and I have to go to the theater, then I think you should quit that job. Hmm. Because I, I don't think that's going to do you any good, and I don't think that's going to do the play any good. Do you know what I mean? You've got to then take a look at where, why have you lost your passion for it. Go back to what it is that excited you about it. I mean, if you're doing it for the paycheck, which I know we all, you know, have to do, but still, there's got to be a way for you to be able to celebrate the event and to treat it. Um, it's really hard. It's hard to be an actor, and it's, it's hard to find good work. And, it's, and so the, when it comes along, the biggest lesson I ever learned was 
early on when I was doing those films and suddenly became really successful and all that kind of stuff, I wasn't really prepared for it. So in some ways, I never gave myself permission to really enjoy it because I was still sort of struck in the struggle of it all, you know, because that's what I was familiar with, was struggling. So now I've come to, you know, a ripe age where, by God, I'm just going to enjoy absolutely everything that happens to me, even the tough stuff, do you know what I mean? Because you, otherwise you're going to miss out. So I, I wipe the slate clean every night. You don't know who's going to be in the audience. Right. You want to do it because somebody's feeling really low and you're going to make them laugh. When I look out on the curtain call and I see a grown 375-pound man who's squished into a seat sobbing <laughs> his heart out, you go, oh, I made my night. You know? <laughs> that made my week. Yeah. I got him to feel something. Yeah. And I'm like Raul, too. I think it's the engagement with the audience do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's filling that air. It's feeling. It's the stuff that gives you those goosebumps, you know, where you know you're taking this kind of spiritual trip, if you will. Do you know what I mean? Without it being... Start to feel like, oh, I can't wait to show you this, what comes next. Like, oh, now we get to do this. You feel like a little kid going, I'm going to tell you a great story, and I get to do this part of the story now for you. And there's something wonderful about not starting a play. Most of the time, I've always started a play. And in this time, there's 23 pages. But what's really interesting is I listen for the first response to the audience, and I know exactly mm -hmm. the kind of audience that I'm going to go out there and deal with. And somebody asked me once, they said, isn't it really hard to come into uh, the scene 23 pages later, which is true. You have no idea what it's really feeling like, and you just have to go in there. So I, I use all of those experiences to keep my enthusiasm you know, up. We've, we've talked a lot today about audience, and I'm curious, inevitably you are, you maybe get letters, you have people at the stage door, you're stopped in the street. What are the most meaningful things that audience members, what have you heard from people that really means a lot to you? It's easy for people to just come up and say, I love you, or I'm your biggest fan, which of course now gets scary because of Stephen King's misery. <laughs> but, but what, what are the things you hear from an audience, not that we want them now all to come up to you on the street and say this after watching the seminar, but, but what does touch you individually? Because we've talked about a general response. David? Well, I know on this show uh, something that I wasn't expecting, which we hear in different forms all the time, which is, God, we needed this. Uh, people come to that show, and, uh, and we sometimes will have a very quiet first act. Hmm. We have never had a performance where we had a quiet second act. The audience, by the end of that show, just goes insane. It is, it, it's just it's the combination of elements, but it's also that thing of having this piece at this particular time. Uh, and in some cases, it's a very personal reason they needed it because uh, uh, we had a couple in Chicago that their son was killed in a car accident, you know, it was uh, six months before, and it was the first time they'd gone out, and they laughed, things like that that are that specific. But just more generally, that idea that not only did people have a good time and enjoy themselves and they thought it was funny, but that they needed it. Hmm. Jerry? I, th <coughs> I think that... Uh, um, and speaking personally, it's when students come up, that's always the, the thing that I'm most pleased about. And uh, just because I know how much uh, uh, people, the, the, the few professional actors I ever got to speak to when I was a young woman 
how much watching their work or I, I did get to ask Colleen Dewhurst a question when I was 16 of how do you keep it fresh? And, uh, and I just remember she threw back her head and did that huge, amazing laugh of hers and said, yeah, don't. <laughs> you learn to fake it really well. But, um, but the, that, to me, it's, it's whenever a young person comes up and I quickly realize that they're in acting school or a young actor and we have a talk, that's sort of, I just sort of live for that. It's just marvelous. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I find that for me, the thing that's interesting about this play is we don't have the sort of normal New York audience that I think goes to Dowd or Pillow Man or Spamalot. We're getting a lot of people from outside the city. And, and the marketing people realize that that's sort of where this play goes. So consequently, when I come out the stage door, there are, are any number of people who go, this is my very first play. Mm. Yeah. And it touches me <laughs> so much. And I'm so relieved it was us that introduced them because they got to laugh and they got to cry. and. Grown men saying, well, ma'am, I just don't know. i never seen a play before, but boy, I just was bawling by the end. <laughs> so it makes, you know, you think, well, thank God that there's a few people because then they're going to go back home and they're going to read that the community theater is doing something or a road show is coming in. And our, our ability to be able to continue to work is surviving, <laughs> yes. you know, by dribs and drabs, I grant you, but it's still out there and it gives regional theater a strong... Uh, sense that maybe they'll get another person to come into the theater. Hmm. I like that idea. Yeah. So as we're talking about people coming into theater and students, we just got a couple of other couple of minutes left. So I just want to ask you all quickly, as you were coming into the business and as you were learning your craft, either educationally specific training or just coming along the way, quickly, what is probably the single thing that you didn't expect to learn, but, but when you discovered it, it was, it was eye-opening for you. Billy, I'm going to put you on the spot. About the business? About just what you had to learn as a performer. Who's the single? Um, I think that discovering where I'm at in my life, discovering uh, what's available to me now, what I'm feeling now, what I'm thinking now, what's the, what is the closest approximation of some kind of, you know, core to me at any specific moment, whatever it is, uh, is probably one of the most constructive tools I can have as an actor trying to be a specific way, trying to mimic something that's worked before, trying to fit into somebody's idea of me, um, are not going to help me to be successful in the way that I would like to be um, most frequently, maybe. Marcia? Um, if I understand your question correctly, the, say it again. Just the one thing you learned as you were starting out that was perhaps the most eye-opening or most important lesson. I think the most important lesson I learned was I didn't know why I was doing it when I first started. 
I didn't. I just wanted to do it desperately, and I had this passion for it, and I just had to do it so much so that I was reckless in the sense of coming to New York, and I didn't see any of the negative aspects or the scary things. And then somewhere along the line, I realized that um, I had to do it for that reason, for the passion, but at the same time, it couldn't be about my ego. And that was a big lesson for me, was that because if I got hung up in the ego part, then I, I, for me, it's so weird. It's like as if they always know. I somehow can't hide if I'm coming from an ego place or a truthful mm -hmm. place. And I always do better when I'm coming from the truthful place. I don't know, somehow it just works. And then when I come from an ego place or I'm coming from that place, then it just never works. So I think those were the two, that was the most important key thing, you know? David? Um, I think it was the, the thing that scared me most about coming, uh, trying to be a professional actor was most of the acting books that I had read, even the books by the greatest acting teachers, had the line in it, uh, don't be an actor if you can do anything else. <laughs> they all said that. They all, that was their advice. It was like, if, you know, if you can choose any other profession, do it. Don't be an actor. And my discovery was that's bullshit, that when I meet my colleagues in this business and realize what complete human beings they are and that the more they have the off to offer, the more able they could do any job almost uh, except business related, th that... <laughs> Physics. That, that we bring all of that to what we do. And uh, that was a big revelation to me that it was okay for me to be in this even though I might have been able to do something else had I chosen to. And I regret that unfortunately we don't have the time for me to get <laughs> the answers <laughs> from our other panelists. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. The American Theatre Wings working in the theatre seminars are brought to you from the CUNY Graduate Center by the American Theatre Wing in association with the CUNY Department of Continuing Education and Public Programs, as well as our longtime partners at CUNY TV. If you'll all join me in thanking our panelists for being with us.